is a uh, kind of an odd time of year, uh, if you've thought about it at all. Maybe at this point you are starting to um, realize that you had one too many cookies, or uh, you're really looking forward to some sort of normalcy to enter into your life again with work, or uh, maybe not so many family members over at your house. There's all sorts of uh, change going on right now. And um, as I was thinking about it, this, this really is kind of a strange time of year, um, because everybody comes together, family comes in town, uh, you go out, maybe you see a movie, Star Wars, on Christmas, or uh, you know, eat lots of really tasty food, and there's a lot of celebration, uh, a lot of presents, and then right after Christmas, up into the new year, there's just this gap of time where everyone's trying to figure out what to do. You know, you wake up and you're like, well, the kids are here, so I guess I'll have to do something. And, uh, and then maybe you try to watch something and then you watch four to five movies and you're like, okay, I'm done with the movies and now I'm ready to go back to work and do something. Um, that's how, how it hits a lot of people. And also, uh, there's kind of a, a, a constant through the season. If you read any articles online about holiday blues, people talk about it differently, but there's always some kind of feeling going around that um, in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, in the midst of all the family, all the people around you, and all the good things that there are to enjoy, and all the presents that you just received, um, there, there is a feeling of despondency or of unsettledness uh, that a lot of people experience as the holiday blues, where they say, you know, even though I have all this great stuff around me, I feel sad. I don't even know why, but I feel sad. And it's that kind of uh, thought or mentality that uh, led a uh, recent author on the New York Times to post an article uh, just a few weeks ago, ran an article on this sort of thing, and um, uh, said this in the opening lines said, all I want for Christmas is a nap. The more I try to get into the holiday spirit, you know, the way everyone else seems to be, the sadder and more anxious I become. And what the author begins to describe is just that, the holiday blues, this time where everything is, should be really joyful, but at the same time, it's, it's mixed with some kind of sadness, and it sometimes can even be crushing, a crushing sort of sadness. And... The, uh, the author then quotes a, uh, a secular kind of leading person in the field of happiness, uh, a lady named Gretchen Rubin, who uh, created a, a project called the Happiness Project. And she says this, that what you really have to do in order to combat those feelings of sadness and despondency um, is to create your own happiness. That's what you have to do. That's the answer. Um, and then she would quote the, uh, the uh, uh, author Reuben this way, saying, quote, Only once you've found the source of your sadness can you reasonably find joy. End quote. So that's the answer. In this kind of limbo phase of the year, when people feel sad for one reason or another, the answer is, if you feel that way, you have to change it. You have to create your own happiness. You have to do something about it. And one of the main things you have to do is find out why you're sad, and then you can be joyful. That's the answer from the New York Times. 
This is not the biblical answer, and we'll see why this morning. But it hits us nonetheless, and people are struggling with this. And I would say that in the article, there's some great tips on kind of how to deal with some stressful times of the year. Um, but we experience it nonetheless, and we really need a solid answer. We need some stability in life to handle this kind of thing. And um, as, as you all know, that this uh, past year has been pretty uh, unsettling for my family in some ways. Uh, some, some challenges that we've had this past summer... Uh, I transitioned off staff uh, as a pastor and have been a lay pastor now for four months at the church, and it has been great to be in that capacity. Um, it's been really great to see Seth come on board and uh, all the different ways that God has been growing the church. It's been really encouraging to us. But in, in this kind of uh, limbo that we've had in our own lives, uh, one of the things that we've been doing is trying to find a, a, another position at another church. And I can say, as uh, some of you have probably heard by now, that God has provided. He's answered. Um, and um, in the midst of all these kind of questions and feelings of, of unsettledness in some ways, God's provided for me and my family a uh, position up in Seattle, Washington. And uh, you would probably have to say, why Seattle first? I mean, that's the first thing everybody thinks. Like, Seattle, really? Um, and certainly we would be uh, sad to leave our family, friends, church, uh, and the great state of Texas. Um, but apparently they already know up there, like Texans are a different breed altogether, so I don't have to talk about that a whole lot. Um, but in this season for us, I notice this kind of unsettledness and, and see God's provision and just marvel at his faithfulness. And so I'm excited, we're excited about the move. Feel free to talk to me after if you want more details. Um, but we'll be moving our family and all of our stuff come here February probably. So uh, I want to make the most of the time that we can with you, certainly. But as I say that and talking about uh, the move and, and all these things, I've been really reflecting on God's faithfulness, and whether it's the holiday blues or new seasons in life and new changes, um, I am called to think on God's faithfulness and Genesis 15 is one of the best passages in the Bible to see that. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Seth said, you can preach whatever you want. So I said, this is what I'm going to do, Genesis 15. Um, and uh, let me give you the main point for today. It's this, that God's covenant promises never fail. That's the main point. God's covenant promises never fail. And there's three ways that we'll break up the chapter to look at it. Uh, first is covenant context. Second is covenant curses, and third is covenant completion. So let's get into reading. Um, we'll explain covenant here in just a second, but really want to get into this text. So if you would, uh, listen to Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. And if you're able to number them, 
Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This may be a, a Sunday school Bible story that you're familiar with. And uh, Genesis 12 is kind of where things pick up with Abraham's story, or Abram's story. I'll use the names interchangeably. His name hasn't quite been changed to Abraham yet, but it's about to be. In Genesis 12, God comes to a Chaldean pagan man and says, I will bless you, Abram. I will bless you. I will make you be a blessing to all the earth, and you will become a great nation. Abram, having nothing to merit this response, says okay. And he up and leaves his, his hometown and follows God into uh, the wilderness. And as that happens... Abram uh, learns to obey God, and it's sort of a progressive thing as it starts out. Abram is, uh, as it turns out, something of a coward and a liar, not the best character qualities, uh, but God continues to lead him, so he leaves and goes out on his own following God, and his nephew Lot goes with him. This is all part of the covenant context, and as he's called out and he goes, Abram's nephew Lot goes out as well and then ends up getting captured by some foreign kings. So he becomes a prisoner of war, and Abram says, i got to do something about this. I'm just giving you the, the uh, rundown on, on a few chapters here. And Abram ends up saying, I'm going to go rescue him. So he goes to rescue Lot, takes him back, defeats all the kings. It was a coalition of kings. And, uh, and then he rescues Lot, and then God comes to Abraham, or Abram, after this episode. And so we see the opening lines, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not. So what does Abram have to be afraid of? Well, as you're reading, one of the things that would stand out to you if you're Abram is, I just beat a bunch of kings, and there's a bunch of kings that probably want to kill me because I did that. So he's probably actually afraid for his own life and family and everything else that he has, because he knows he is one man with a family, about 70 people, uh, but that still is not that impressive in the rest of the world's eyes. And so he's probably afraid about that. But more importantly, as we see, he's afraid that God's promise to him won't come to fruition. He talks about his heir being Eliezer of Damascus. Things will default to the head of his household, which is a servant. He has no son to pass things on to. It's just him and his wife, despite all the things that they have, and so Abram here is really wrestling with fear and faith. He's in a, in a place in life where he has just seen, somewhat similar to the holiday blues, I would say, God's faithfulness, rejoiced in what God has done. He's seen a massive move of God. God has protected him. He's brought his nephew back to him and all his possessions. He's protected him from all these foreign kings. And now, just after this, Abram's afraid. You see this kind of pattern all throughout the Bible. People experience God's faithfulness, his goodness, and then right after that, they say, oh man, but is God really going to take care of me? Yes! The answer is always yes. And so Abram here is afraid, and God comes to him. He speaks to him, and he says, I will confirm the promise I made to you. So Genesis 12, it's very important here in knowing what's going on. And then Genesis 15 God comes and he essentially reaffirms his promise. He says, you, you really want to know if I'm going to keep my word to you. 
And Abraham says yes, and he believes God. And at this point, we're really starting to sum up the covenant context. You see, the covenant context going on, again, we'll get to covenant in a second, is that before Abraham does anything, God comes to him. God provides for him. God promises things to him. Abraham does nothing for this. He doesn't go out to God. He doesn't know God first. He doesn't try to impress God. The covenant context that we see is God's own faithfulness before Abraham even knows who God is. So as I think about that and my own kind of faith flounderings in life, I, I realized, you know what I need to do? I just need to be honest like Abram sometimes. Like, if I'm having a difficult time trusting God, that's not the time to say, no, I'm not really not trusting God. How great would it be if we, like Abram, can step in and say, God, I just don't understand why right now. And it hits us at all different times of life. I don't understand why this person's dying. I don't understand why these financial struggles persist. I don't know why this relational tension doesn't go away or doesn't get better. These are all opportunities, like Abraham, to step in and say, God, please be faithful, restore, help. And we need to do that. And that's the covenant context, that faithfulness begins with God. But we also need to see the covenant curses. And so here's where uh, I'll get to explaining covenants a little bit more. Let's read Genesis 15, 7-16. And he said to him, that's God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not heirs, theirs, and they will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, and I, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. It's the exodus from Egypt. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the first part of Genesis 15 normally makes its way to Sunday school stories. The rest of Genesis 15 doesn't normally get there. Okay? I don't remember as a kid thinking about animals being cut in half and people walking through their blood. Okay? That's, not, that's not one of the Bible stories I really remember, but we're getting into it today. So what's happening here is a covenant is taking place. It's a covenant ceremony or a covenant ritual. And it's extremely important. Abraham, as you see, is doubting and struggling with his faith with God. He says, God, just give me, give me something. Seal it for me. Confirm it to me. How will I know that you're going to do these things? You're saying you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. Just help me. And what God does is enter into a covenant ceremony or a covenant ritual with Abram here. 
And it is a bloody affair. It is. Covenants, to explain covenants for you, covenants were a common thing in the ancient Near East and in the, the setting of the Bible. And they're even a, a common thing today. We have marriage covenants. Uh, we have different kinds of covenants. We don't really have covenants except for marriage like they had back then, but we still have them and we can understand them to some degree, especially marriage. And so let's, let's see what happens here. Skip forward to verse 18. It says, On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land. There are two ways to talk about covenants in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Number one is to say that there is a, a covenant that is going to be established or reaffirmed or upheld. That's one of two ways to talk about it. So, for instance, when God comes to Noah and he talks about his covenant with Noah to never destroy the earth again, he does not talk about making a new covenant. He talks about reaffirming an existing covenant. He says, I will take care of you. I will take care of the earth. This destruction will not happen again by a flood. So that's one way to talk about it, but that's not the way it's talked about here. The way it's talked about here is to cut a covenant literally. So it says, make a covenant with Abram. Uh, literally, that means to cut a covenant, which obviously we understand as cutting animals in two. <clears throat> and this is something that has never been done before in the history of the world. This particular covenant. It's brand new. This is something that will guarantee whatever is being promised on pain of death. And so in an ancient Near Eastern world, which is the Old Testament world, as this is going on, Abram understands, I need something. And God says, I'm going to come to you and I will, I will give you something that cannot be revoked. It cannot be pulled back on. This is the one thing that will happen regardless of any other things. It is a covenant between you and me. And so they cut a covenant. And this is not something odd in the Old Testament, as I said. We actually have documents. Uh, if you want them, I can give them to you. But translations of original covenants or treaties between different nations in biblical times. So uh, one of the, the, the most helpful ones is a treaty that we still have between Egypt and the nation of Hittite, the Hittites. And in that treaty, the same sorts of things happen here. There's, there's animals that are cut in two. There's oaths of a covenant. There's a lot of different elements of a covenant. There's a title, a prologue. There's stipulations. There's depositions. There's witnesses to it. There's cursings and there's blessings. This is very much a legal, legally binding ritual, but it's far more than that. Far more than that. This is a very personal, this is the most personal sort of commitment that you can make to somebody. It's not simply legal. It's not simply paper. It's far more. It's personal. And that's what God does with Abraham here. So I'm giving you, giving you information. It's all going to make sense in a second. But we, what we see is after God does this, um, or as he's doing it, there is, there is a, uh, a ritual here. And from other extra-biblical information, the way that we know this normally went down is the animals are cut in two, and then the two parties will go hand in hand, holding hands together, and they would walk through the cut animals in the blood in a figure eight, symbolizing that this covenant is 
breakable only by the blood that is shed here. Essentially, the point is, if I break the covenant, may my life be like these animals, sealed in blood. Again, not the normal Sunday school message, but that's what God is communicating and we should pay attention to it. We have some examples like this. A lease, if you are ever uh, leasing home or rent, you enter into a lease agreement and we see a little bit of this with the curse that if you break that lease, if you get out of that lease before the year is up or whatever the time frame is, or you damage the property, you will get the cursings of the lease upon your head, right? We know that. It is something to deter you from breaking your word and saying, I'm going to keep this. I'm not going to pay an extra $1,200 or whatever it is for this rent house. The curses of the covenant essentially would fall on you if you did that. Um, Now, thankfully, we don't have to go through this whole ceremony to get a rent house these days. But it just highlights the sort of intensity that's involved in this covenant. Not only that, we have marriage. How, what do you say in your marriage vows? To death do us part. It's the same kind of thing. There are, there are blessings and cursings involved in covenants, and what God is saying as he's participating in this is this curse of death will fall on anyone who breaks the covenant. That's how it worked. And so people would break the covenants in Old Testament days, and then they would die because other nations would come and say, here are the lawbreakers, they don't keep their word, and then they would kill them. So this is a very serious thing. But this is not the very first time that we've seen curses in the Bible. As Seth preached three or four weeks ago, we have the first sort of Christmas in Genesis 3, where we see Jesus promised. And as that happens, Adam and Eve break God's law, they rebel against him, and what happens immediately? God comes to the serpent, he comes to the woman, and he comes to the man, And he says, curses on you. Curses. The serpent, he'll be crushed. The woman, pain and childbearing and relational difficulty. Man, thorns and thistles, eating by the sweat of your brow and ultimately death. You'll return to dust. These are curses. And it's not only in Genesis. It happens later on in Deuteronomy. If you want to study it later, go for it. Deuteronomy is itself a document, a legal document of a covenant between God and his people. And so all the elements are found there. And I'll just jump forward here at the end of it and read you a little bit of chapter 28, Deuteronomy. Again, cursings of the covenant. But if you, speaking to Israel, will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And for the next two chapters, curses. And it lists it out. Cursed shall you be in the city, in the field, your basket, your kneading bowl, the fruit of your womb, the ground. When you come in, when you go out, cursed if you break this covenant. And in verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. There are serious consequences to breaking your word, breaking a covenant. 
and it sounds horrible. I mean, I don't, I don't read that and I say, wow, that sounds, that sounds like something I could handle. That's horrible. I mean, cursed at every point in the day. If I were to go to you and say, uh, uh, every cell phone that you purchase, every phone you have for the rest of your life from this moment on is cursed. Everyone that you touch will break. It would, it would get annoying, right? You get one, within a week it breaks. Get another one, second week, oh, maybe it's just a fluke. Another one breaks. Third, okay, you just can't have a cell phone anymore. That, that, would, be, that would be annoying. These curses are not annoying. This will decimate you. There's no coming back from this kind of cursing. Unless God intervenes. And so that's what is happening here in the covenant curses. It's serious stuff. And it should cause us to really think about our own lives. I mean, who really keeps their word like this? You know? Who, who really keeps their, their oath on pain of death? It's hard stuff. But that's why it doesn't end there and it goes on to what we can say is the covenant completion. So let's keep reading. Genesis 15, 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down in this covenant ceremony and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites and Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. What is going on besides a lot of ites in this passage? Um, there's some strange things happening. It's already strange that we see to our, our understanding all this blood and animals, but now a smoking fire pot and flaming torch appear. It's getting weird, and uh, it's getting weird even for their day, okay? So we're not alone in this, uh, but something very odd is happening, and we know that God's made a covenant with Abraham, so he's the one who is this smoking fire pot and flaming torch. God's the one making the, the covenant with him. But what do these symbols mean? Uh, the shortest way to, to talk about it is that these symbols are speaking of God's own presence, his own presence. In some hundreds of years later on, when God's leading his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, what happens when he does that? There is a cloud by day and a fire by night that goes before them everywhere. And it symbolizes God's presence. And it's the same here. What's happening is God himself is coming down and he is going through this ritual ceremony with Abram. It is not anyone else. God himself is doing it. He is walking through this covenant ceremony in person. And that's important. But there's something still more important about this. And it's really odd. We kind of skipped over it. The oddest thing in this entire account is that Abraham, if you didn't get it, is incapacitated. He's set on the side. While this whole ceremony is going on, God makes Abraham go into a deep sleep and sit on the side, and so he can't participate. 
So what happens is God participates on his behalf. This is incredible. Absolutely incredible. There are two things that really stand out about this whole account that make it unheard of today and in the ancient world. Number one, covenants were done between nations and nations. They were not done between a God and a man. This is completely different. In the Old Testament, these covenants would happen between one nation and another. Symbolically, they understood there's something going on heavenly between my God and your God. That's as far as it went. What God communicates here is no, there is not one nation to another. There is not one God to another God. It is me and you, God to man. That is the first thing. It makes it unheard of. The second thing, and the most important, is that God is the only one to participate in this covenant ceremony. This never happened before. This, it, it almost removes the entire purpose of participating in a ceremony like this. What's the point in, in this whole thing if I'm the one who has to pay for it? And that's the message. That's what's happening. God is, here we see, the guarantor in the covenant of his side and Abraham's side. And if we think about that, we'll say, well, okay, God's entering into a covenant. He's putting his life on the line if he, if he breaks his word. Does God break his word? No. So, there's no problem for God here. God's not going to break his word. He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. Always truthful. He's not going to break his word. But the amazing thing, when he puts Abraham to the side, God steps in and says, Abraham, not only will I fulfill the covenant on my behalf, I will fill it on your behalf. While you are on the side and you can't even participate, when you break the covenant or your sons break the covenant between you and me, I will pay for your rebellion. I will pay for your sins. This is another place in the Old Testament where we get to see the gospel. And it's incredible that God is the guarantor. He says, God says to Abraham, if you break your word, I'll be cursed. Not you. And this is not the first time anybody has seen this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, saw it clearly. And in Galatians 3, he talks about it this way. A great two verses to memorize if you want to memorize anything. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. That Christ, Jesus comes, and he redeemed us from the curse. Same language, cursing. Curse of the law, which is a covenant, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You know who's hung on a tree? Liars, deceivers, lawbreakers. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What Paul says as he is thinking about Jesus and the Old Testament and all of God's promises, his mind inevitably goes back to Genesis 15 and he says, the curse. Abraham's curse. The curse of God's people not holding up their end of the bargain fell on Jesus. 
And because it falls on Jesus, we're free. Because the curse falls on Jesus, we are free to receive the blessings of the covenant. It's absolutely incredible. Let me read you somebody who has uh, commented on this and seen it much clearer than I have. It's a man named Ray Lon. He says this, What an awesome God we have. What incredible love He has for His creatures. Imagine, the Creator of the universe, holy and righteous God, was willing to leave heaven and come down to a nomad's tent in a dusty, hot desert to express His love for His people. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, along with a dove and a young pigeon, God told Abraham. Then when those animals had been sacrificed and laid out on both sides of their shed blood, God made a covenant. To do that, he walked barefoot in the form of a blazing torch through the path of blood between the animals. Think of it. Almighty God, walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being doing that is to say, in the least, unpleasant. Yet God, in all his power and majesty, expressed his love that personally. And this covenant, if this covenant is broken, God says to Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, says God. If you or your descendants on whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. At that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. This is the gospel we have. That on the Christ, Jesus took on the curse that we deserve for breaking the relationship with God. We should be separated forever from Him. But instead, Jesus comes to die in our place for our sin. Only through Christ are we made clean by the blood of a better covenant. A better covenant. In just a second, we'll take communion, and this is what Jesus says at the Last Supper, is it not? That this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for entering into our life, entering into our mess, entering into our pain and our despondency and our sadness. And like Abram coming to love sacrificially, Lord, we thank you for Jesus who stands as our intercessor of a new and better covenant that no one can ever break or destroy. Thank you for life with you. And we thank you that that life extends into a new year in 2020. God, you are holy and you are worthy of our praise. We praise you. Amen.